Our scripture passage this evening is not Romans chapter 4. As I studied it, I felt that James chapter 2 fits the teaching better and is a better example uh, of of the scripture's teaching on this. So our scripture passage this evening is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 24. And that can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,882. And I tried to get Gail to change it, but she was in Canada, so it didn't work out. Uh, that's, a, that's a joke. It's a joke. I didn't do that. Here now the, the, the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible word. What good is it, my brothers... If a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless or dead? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Let's see. Reading of God's word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Also this evening... Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 24, back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 31. We can uh, read the answers together in unison. Why can't the good we do make us right with God, or at least help make us right with Him? Because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. Even the very best we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. How can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything when God promises to reward it in this life and the next? This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. It's the teaching of the catechism. William Cowper wrote a poem where he contrasted what he calls the loud professor or someone who's made a profession of faith, but they're proud of it in the wrong way, if you know what I mean. You can say the contrast between the Pharisee who is saying, oh, dear Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like 
those people and the publican who said, Father, I'm a sinner. We know which one went home justified. William Cowper also wrote the hymns like God Works in Mysterious Ways and whatnot. Listen to what he wrote in this poem. The Lord receives his highest praise from humble minds and hearts sincere. While all the loud professor says offends the righteous judge's ear. To walk as children of the day, to mark the precepts holy light, to wage the warfare, watch and pray, shew who are pleasing in his sight. Not words alone it costs the Lord to purchase pardon for his own, nor will a soul by grace restored return the Savior words alone. With golden bells, the priestly vest, and rich pomegranates bordered round, the need of holiness expressed and called for fruit as well as sound. Easy indeed it were to reach a mansion in the courts above, if swelling words and fluent speech might serve instead of faith and love. But none shall gain the blissful place or God's unclouded glory see who talks of free and sovereign grace, unless that grace has made him free. You see the contrast there. The faith that is a transforming faith is is more than merely words. It's deeds, it's love, it's action. It goes beyond. Short review... We're going through the section of the Catechism, technically still, that's about the Apostles' Creed, although we have left behind the words of the Apostles' Creed. And in this section, we're talking about the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. In the Catechism today, in contrast to the teaching of justification by faith alone in Lord's Day 23, is moving on to the question of what place does works have in our justification or our sanctification? What place does works have in our lives as Christians? Good works, right? So let's get into it. The theme is easy. True faith created in us by the Holy Spirit produces good works. True faith created in us by the Holy Spirit produces good works. So we're still on this category of true faith. And remember, back when we talked about the nature of true faith, we were told it's created in us by the Holy Spirit. Right? So, number one, point number one, we're going to look at good works in God's law. Point number two, we're going to look at good works. In God's grace. And point number three, good works and true faith. True faith created in us by the Holy Spirit produces good works. Uh, question number 62 talks about good works relationship to God's law. 
Question number 63 talks about good works in relationship to God's grace. And question number three talks about good works in relationship to uh, true faith. So then, let's look at point number one. Good works in God's law. Question 62 is a natural objection to the teaching of justification by faith alone. The Reformed teaching of justification by faith alone. Because at the time, the Roman Catholic Church was teaching that justification is a working together, right? So it's really just this question. Well, you're saying our good works do nothing for us before God. And we're saying, why not? And people still ask this today. This is, not a, this is not a question that's gone, okay? Why not? In fact, if you go out on the street and you say, uh, why should God let you into heaven? They'll say, I'm a good person. And then you'll say, why are you a good person? And they'll say, because I go to the soup kitchen and because I give money out at Christmas time and because I, what are they doing? They're assuming that those things which they do change their position before God. Right? That's exactly what's going on here. The catechism predicts the criticism of the Roman Catholic Church to the teaching of justification by faith alone coming from the Reformation. The Roman Catholics taught, and they still teach today, this idea. Do your best, and God will do the rest. Do your best and God will do the rest. So there's still great grace is still needed, but grace is not sufficient. Does that make sense? We can, we can call this a number of things. We call it Pelagian or semi-Pelagian or Arminian or bare bones. We call it synergism. Synergism is a combination of words. Ergo is the Greek word for energy or work, right? And then sin is a Greek word for together. So working together, that's what synergism is. God does his part, we do our part. That's what question 62 is asking. Why can't the good we do make us right with God or at least help make us right with God? Salvation is a cooperative effort between God and man, between our creator and the creatures, right? Why can't our good works make us right with God or at least help? The answer the catechism provides is deeply biblical and goes back to what was discussed earlier in question and answer five. If you think about what we said in question and answer five, it was this. Can we keep this standard, God's law, perfectly? The answer was no. We have a natural tendency. Maybe you remember the rest of it. We have a natural tendency to hate God and our neighbors. So this goes back to the, uh, our sinful nature, right? So the catechism is asking this question to help us think, to help us learn. 
But it's almost as if it's forgetting everything we've learned before in order to do that. Because why can't the good we do make us right with God or at least help make us right with Him? Because we are not good. We're not good. Because we can't live up to God's law because we have this sinful nature, depravity, and inability makes the idea of good works impossible. In our fallen state, all our righteousness is as filthy rags, as Isaiah the prophet spoke. And that's exactly what the answer says here. It says, because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be perfect. Entirely perfect. And must be in every way measure up to the divine law. In fact, we just read from James, right? And earlier in James, we are told, or maybe later in James, we are told that if you break the law at one point, you're guilty of it all. You're guilty of it all. In this vein, Charles Spurgeon once said something that I think is great. He said, don't worry when others speak ill of you. Do not be upset, for you're much worse than they think. He's good with things like that, but it's helpful, helpful for us to think about that, right? Because we are sinners. We are imperfect. We are broken. We are incapable of any perfect good, right? To even say that we have good works is an expression of pride. Pride is always the enemy of hope. Therefore, the good news always has to be uh, come after the bad news, doesn't it? The bad news is that we are fallen in our sin. The reason we need a Savior is because we are not saved. Because we are very broken. God demands perfect obedience to His law. Our sinfulness makes this impossible. And we're told even the very best we do in this life is imperfect. And stained with sin. Here's the point, though. The point is to derive the believer of Lord's Day 1, whose only comfort in life and death is that we're not our own but belong to Jesus Christ, to the works of another. To not drive the believer to their own works, but to the works of another, to the only work that God will receive, the perfect and sinless work of Christ. And if you think about this, Christ, you will see that he is everything that we are not in this answer. Because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect. Christ's righteousness is perfect. It must in every way measure up to the divine law. Christ never once broke God's law. Even the very best we do in this life is imperfect, but Christ's best was perfect and was without sin. And knowing that Christ's work is the only work accepted by God makes the idea of some sort of mixture of Christ's work and our work, you know, well, maybe, you know, we can at least help, right? It's an insult. It's absurd. Our work can't complement the work of Christ because to say that our work in some way can help the work of Christ is to say that Christ's work is lacking or insufficient in some way. Not only that, but if the question or the answer to this question was, yes, our good works can make us right before God, 
Let me ask you a question. What would be the point of sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross? If we were capable with our good works to make ourselves right with God. Just as some great example of the way you live sacrificially? That's what some say, and they're very, very wrong. To say that we, our good works, can make us right with God is to say that Christ never needed to come, never needed to die, that in fact we don't need a Savior. We can save ourselves. Most importantly, if we contribute to our salvation in any way, then salvation is not to God's glory alone. And we have a reason to boast, even though the scriptures explicitly tell us we do not have a reason to boast, and all that we've been given has been given to us. It is not of us that we should boast. So, good works in God's law show us that because of our sin, because of our sinful natures, we cannot do good works that make us right with God, nor can we even help to make ourselves right with God. We're being pushed to the perfect work of Christ. Let's look at good works and God's grace then. There's a pushback, question 63. Well, how can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything when God promises to reward it in this life and the next? So uh, there's these, this mention of promised rewards, right, in Scripture. We're not denying that reality. There's promised rewards talked about in Scripture. The Bible promises these rewards in, the li- in this life and the next. I have one example for you from the Scriptures so you can take note of. Uh, in Matthew 19, after Jesus spoke to the, uh, the rich young ruler and told him, go sell all your things. And he had a lot and he went away sad because he's like, I love my things more than I love God. And so uh, Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to get into to heaven, right? And then he went on and he talked to his disciples and, and, his, and Peter said, well, Lord, I think Peter's trying to see if his good works, right? We'll make him right before, before God. Well, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. That's Matthew 19, verse 27 through 29. So we're promised that the road of faith is a rewarding one. Maybe not rewarding according to worldly standards, but rewarding nonetheless. But here's the assumption that so many people make. The assumption is this. If there are rewards, it must mean we've earned them. That's the presupposition. That's the assumption. Rewards equals earned. We're given rewards, so we must have earned them. I mean, you can't blame them. That's almost common sense type thinking. It's what we are taught to think in so many ways. 
The promise of rewards for so many presupposes the meritorious nature of the good works we do in this life. But they didn't ask the question, what are the nature of these rewards? And that's what the answer says here. The answer is, the question is twice as long as the answer is here. The answer is, this reward is not earned. And it's a gift of grace. You're wrong. Your assumption is wrong. It's a gift of grace. Work and reward are related, but not by obligation. For instance, a reward should be distinguished from wages paid to an employee for the work they were contracted to do. That was the example in Romans 4, right? You work for me, I pay you. That's not a gift. That's what you've earned. But a reward is not the same. This reward is maybe kind of like the reward a father gives to his child. Not because the child earned it, but because father loves the child. The way this works out, though, is even more profound than that. Because what God is rewarding, the rewards that he's giving to us, he's actually not giving to us, he's giving to Christ. Stay with me here. He's actually not giving them to us. He's giving them to Christ. The reward that God has given to us are the works of His Son credited to us as believers. God isn't actually rewarding us based on the good works that we've done, but based on the good works of Christ being applied to us. Christ is the one rewarded. You know, the one who His righteousness was perfect, who measured up perfectly to the divine law, who did everything in this life with perfection and without stain of sin. But this is a good thing, because the more Christ is rewarded, the more we are rewarded. Christ earned it, but then he pays it to us. That's why it's grace. That's why it's not earned, but it is the gift of grace. The freedom of God and his given rewards is illustrated in the parable of the vineyard workers. I know maybe you remember this, Matthew chapter 20. And some people come and they start working for this vineyard owner at the beginning of the day. And then some people come a few hours later and they begin working for this vineyard uh, owner. And then a few hours later, another group starts and comes to work. And then if, right at the end of the day, a couple hours before the end of the day, another group comes in. And what happens is at the end of the day, they all get paid the same. And the ones who were working since the very early morning and went through all the sweaty heat of the day, they looked at those two people or whatever, how many people came and worked the last two hours and said, this isn't fair. But the illustration Jesus is making is this. The gift of grace that we've received and salvation and all the benefits of Christ is not something we've deserved for hours worked. It is that. It is a gift of grace. Maybe a better illustration would be something like this. If a 70-year-old man were to come into this church, hear the preaching of the gospel, and desire to be saved, he never went to church before, he, he's never been into a church before, and the elders met with him, and heard his testimony. He made profession of faith in this church. He was baptized. 
What he has now is nothing different than you who have been in this church since you were a child, who were raised in a Christian family, and who had all the blessings and benefits of of being in a Christian family and being raised in this church from, from day one. He has salvation. He has all the benefits of Christ. He came in the last two hours of the vineyard to work, but he has it all. He has just as much. Maybe that's helpful for you. But let's work, let's look at this last point then, God, uh, good works and true faith. Because I think this is going to be the good uh, transition point to get into our, our text. Because we need to take time to look at our biblical passage because it's a controversial one, to say the least. Good works and true faith. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? This was the primary fear and rejection of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation. They believed that the Reformation teaching of God's grace and salvation would create lazy and sinful people. They thought all of us little, uh, you know, churchgoers were unintelligent and we needed to just stay on the treadmill and start keep doing things, keep us busy, right? This was the idea. Doesn't this make salvation a get-out-of-hell-free card and encourage people just to sign the dotted line and then go on living sinful and corrupt lives? That was the concern of believing in a gracious God who saves us, not because of anything that we do, but because of his grace alone. This subjection was not new. In fact, it's been around since the Bible was written. It was even an accusation brought against the Apostle Paul himself for the gospel that he was preaching. He raised this hypothetical question in response to his, uh, his, um, his critics, saying, Shall we go on sinning? That grace may abound. Grace may abound. The idea was, well, by God's grace, he saved us, and there's no requirement on our behalf, then the more we sin, the more grace that we get. But the answer that Paul had should also be the answer that we have, may it never be. May it never be. The error in this thinking is found in a lack of understanding concerning the nature of God's grace. The nature of true faith, right? The people who say, if we teach this, we're just going to have a bunch of lazy, indifferent, and wicked people claiming to be Christians don't understand this true faith that has been created in us by the Holy Spirit. You see, God doesn't save people and then leave them to their own devices. The Spirit which has caused us to be born again to a living hope doesn't eliminate the need for good works. It actually makes good works possible. Remember what I said about 
our sinful natures, right? In our sinful nature, we are incapable of good works, even to a, a degree of, of imperfect good works that are still stained with sin. We're incapable of it. But by, but by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, good works are now even possible. Good works are possible. Here's the difference. Here's where we see the split. It's all about works religion versus grace religion. Works religion versus grace religion. Many, many expressions of the Christian faith, including the Roman Catholic Church, have this idea of works religion, right? We have to stay faithful in order to stay saved. That's another expression of works religion, right? Um, we need to uh, make our quota of, of uh, time spent in the church or in services or anything like that. Uh, that's works religion. Works religion says being good and doing good will get you saved. This is what grace religion says. Grace religion says it's impossible to be saved by works, but once we are saved, it's impossible not to do good works. This is the paradox. The paradox. The seeming contradiction. It's a seeming contradiction. It's not a contradiction. The paradox is this. We aren't saved by works, but we aren't saved without works. We aren't saved by works, but we aren't saved without works. Answer 64 tells us that good works are an indissoluble ingredient of a living and true faith. It says, no, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Those who have true faith then should constantly be reminded not to put any confidence in their own works as some sort of bargaining tool before God, but rather they should look to Christ and His perfect work as they seek to live lives of gratitude. But those who have a life empty of good works, on the other hand, should be asked, shouldn't be asked, should not be asked to try harder, to do more, to work more. They should be asked to examine themselves to see whether they have true faith. This brings up the issue of the tension between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility. God is sovereign over our salvation, but we are still responsible, right? Charles Spurgeon, again, once, was once asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. God is sovereign over our justification, and yes, even over our sanctification, yet we are still held responsible to turn from our sin, to trust in Christ, and to grow in our lives of godliness and holiness and our gratitude towards Him for the salvation we receive. This is the biblical answer that avoids the extremes of cheap grace, going on sinning that grace may abound, right? Or easy believism that says all I need to do is believe that Jesus died for my sins and then I can you know, live like a heathen, right? And then legalism, which says, I need to follow the letter of the law in order to be right with God. 
this is the answer to that. It's that true faith produces, true faith created in us by the Holy Spirit produces good works. It's the answer of Ephesians 8 through 10, which says, we have been saved by grace through faith. This, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God that no man should boast. For we are God's workmanship created in him to do good works which he has appointed for us. That is the teaching of God's word. Without faith, we do not have Christ. Without Christ, there are no good works. And this is when I want to talk about James chapter 2. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. I think he was just a man of his time. And he was really fighting against the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And the book of James gave the Catholic Church a lot of ammo. Because they'll say, why do you say that we're justified by faith alone? In fact, the only place in the Bible where the words faith alone are found is James chapter 2, verse 24 that says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Ha ha! Gotcha. James 2, 14 through 24 is important because it is teaching us the very thing that question and answer 64 of the Heidelberg Catechism is teaching us. That's impossible for those who have a living and true faith to not produce fruits of gratitude. So let's look at it. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? That's the first thing we need to see here is that James is contrasting types of faith. He's saying there's this kind of faith and there's this kind of faith. And it's the same thing that William Cowper was contrasting in the poem we read at the beginning, right? The loud professor and the one who has faith and love working together, right? Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So this kind of faith that he's talking about, that sees a brother or sister in need and says, oh, with their words, with their mouth, right? Go, be warm, be well fed, even though they can plainly see this person needs clothing and this person needs food. That's called the dead kind of faith. That's the dead faith. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. We all work together. You do the faith part, I'll do the deeds part, right? James' response to that is, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. He's saying, faith is what makes those deeds possible, right? You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So another kind of faith that he's saying, this isn't going to work, is uh, knowledge-only faith, right? Knowledge-only faith is also dead faith. It's not just about facts, right? And that's exactly what the catechism teaches us. It says, it's not only, I have not only a knowledge, but a conviction. Knowledge-only faith is, is 
dead too because you believe there's one God? Good. The demons believe that and the shudder. And guess what? The demons, they aren't saved. The demons have faith and they're not saved. Do you know that? The demons have faith and they're not saved. They're not saved. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless or dead? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? This is important because this is the same example that Paul uses in Romans chapter 4 to talk about justification by faith alone. Here, James is using it in a different way. Abraham, we're seeing what kind of faith Abraham has. Is it a living faith or is it a dead faith? You see that his faith his, and his actions were working together. In fact, working together, that word right there, it's synergism. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. What we misunderstand when we look at this passage is this. James is talking about dead faith, living faith. But James is not talking about determining whether God knows we have dead faith or living faith. Did God need to see if Abraham's faith was a living faith? No, because God, in his grace, gave Abraham a living faith. Who needed to see that Abraham's faith was a living faith by him offering Isaac? We do. We need to see the testimony in scriptures of what living faith looks like. It does not simply look like believe God and his credit to you as righteousness. It also looks like a transformed life. A transformed life in which somebody would even, by having faith, so much faith in God, offer up his only son Isaac on the altar. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. He's justified before his fellow Christians. Here's my question to you. How do you know that I have a true and living faith? God knows I have a true and living faith. It was created in me by the Holy Spirit. How do you know I have a true and living faith? By what I do. Because it's impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Just in the same way that it was impossible for Abraham, once he was justified by his belief, it was credited as righteousness to him, not to produce fruits of gratitude. That's what James 2 is teaching us. That's what the catechism is teaching us. It's teaching us that when God changes a person, grants them salvation by the Holy Spirit, they are transformed and they live lives of gratitude and service to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this evening that we may know 
that you have done a work in us and that you will see it to completion. We ask that you continue to give us hearts of service and gratitude to you for the salvation you've given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.